Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidin anbiya wal mursaleen Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Wa man istanna bi sunnatihi ila yumiddin Allahumma ja'alna minhum wa minal ladhina amanu wa aminu salihat Wa tawasab al-haq Wa tawasab al-sabr Wa Allahumma taqabal minna qiyamana ya rahman rahim InshaAllah ta'ala we're going to uh, talk about a few things Again not a tafsir but just a few points of reflection From Surah Al-Fatiha tonight Bi'idhnillah Which actually covers some of the most fundamental aspects of our deen Actually you could consider Surah Al-Fatiha that we recite in every salah A summary of all of Islam So if somebody understands Surah Al-Fatiha properly Then they also have the ability to is- explain Islam to somebody else comprehensively Because it contains pretty much everything you need to know Or you need to explain to someone to give them a full picture Of what Islam really represents we're going to divide the study of Fatiha into three parts The first three ayat, the middle ayah, and then the last three ayat This is how the Fatiha is divided okay? And in the first three ayat, again, not, an explain, not a very detailed tafsir, very simple discussion inshallah ta'ala The first word, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen And we're not going to even go into the discussion about the Basmalah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Some Mufassirun consider that to be the first ayah of the Fatiha Others say no, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is the first ayah But we're going to start with Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen just to make the matter brief inshallah ta'ala The first part of that is Alhamdulillah And at the very least we have to translate Alhamdulillah as praise and gratitude belong to Allah at the very least, you cannot really translate it praise belongs to Allah And you can't just translate it thanks belong to Allah The word hamd includes two things, praise and gratitude These are two very separate things Now Arabic has a word for either of them You could say madh or thana for praise And you could say shukr for gratitude So alhamdulillah includes madh, includes thana and it also includes Shukr, it includes all of these things in one word Now before we go any further We have to understand the difference between praising Allah and thanking Allah And before we talk about Allah, let's talk about just generally these two terms Someone you praise isn't necessarily someone you thank And someone you thank isn't necessarily someone you praise These are mutually exclusive things In other words, for example, if you see a really nice car in the parking lot You're not going to thank the car, but you might do what? You might praise the car, that's a nice car You don't go over to, you know, pat the car on the hood and say thank you so much You don't do that, it doesn't make any sense, right? On the other hand, you have, you know, a situation Let's take a religious situation It's, it's obligatory on all believers And this is not something new in our messenger's uh, revelation It's been there from the very beginning uh, of all the messengers والسلام, That we have to be grateful to our parents We have to be grateful to our parents now Ibrahim salam, of course also has to be grateful to his parents So he is grateful to Azar We know Azar, his name, the name of his father as mentioned in the Quran He's grateful to him But does he praise his father? Does it, what the father does, is it worthy of praise or criticism? What the father does should be criticized, it shouldn't be praised So he's, he's grateful to him but he's not praising him right? So you can praise someone without thanking them And you can thank someone without Praising them. These are the two different things. Now when we talk about Allah Azza wa Jal, 
we say alhamdu we don't say al-madhu wa shukru lillah we don't separate the two words we put them under one word which is hamd this has very profound implications it means everything that Allah does we thank him for it and everything Allah does we at the same time praise him for it we do two things for everything we know about Allah for everything we appreciate about Allah Azza wa Jal we thank him for it we praise him for it this changes our attitude towards Allah very drastically from people of other faiths you may know Christians and other people of other faiths in your circles you may even know some Muslims who don't know their deen very well and sometimes they say things about God or say, this, say things about Allah that are far from appropriate have you ever heard things like if God is so great how come there's so much war how come there's so much hunger how come there's so much famine how come there's so much disease how come there's so much chaos in the world where is God when all of this is going on I was actually on a flight this is a true story. I was on a flight back from Las Vegas. It was a Quran conference, I swear. Okay, so I was on a flight back from Vegas, and next to me was an old Jewish couple. And these are both very, they're, they're Holocaust survivors. Right? And they see me reading Quran, and the old man, he says to me, Why don't you read this to me? Recite it in, the, in its language. I like to hear it. So I recited some Quran to him, and we just started talking. This is a long flight back to New York, right? So, really long flight, five hours. So we're talking and halfway through, yeah, we believe in God too. We also have faith. And like half an hour into that conversation, yeah, actually, I don't believe in God. I said, what? We started half an hour ago. You said you have faith too. He said, well, where was God when the Holocaust happened? Right? In other words, they're kind of in a conflict. On the one hand, they say they believe. On the other hand, how can we believe if this and this happened, etc. Now the thing is, our first response as believers is we understand that everything Allah does, everything Allah does, whether we understand it in our head or not, we are grateful to Allah for everything He does, and we praise Allah for everything He does. Now the matter of understanding the wisdom in it, and the larger plan, we may or may not understand. But we still have to have this attitude. Many a times you may have heard this parallel, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَثَلُ الْأَعْلَى A parent is giving medicine to the child. The medicine tastes bad. Right? The medicine tastes bad. But the mother, when she gives them the medicine, when the child understands better, what are they going to do? They're going to thank. Right? And they're also going to praise. But at that moment, what are they doing? They're complaining. Because they don't know what else is going on. There are two worlds at work. There's a world you can see with your eyes, and there's a world we cannot see. Alim al-Ghayb. Now we see things in Alim al-Shahada. We see the, world, the, the things in the world of the scene. And we start making complaints without realizing that there is another world, a world we don't see. And because Allah sees both of them and His plan is in conjunction with both of them, whatever He does, we thank Him for and we praise Him for. Another wonderful thing about this beginning of the Fatiha is we don't say, you know, the Hadith tells us that Allah Azza wa has at least 99 names, right? And you know many of them. But we don't say Alhamdulil Khaliq, Alhamdulil Malik, Alhamdulil Rahim, right? Alhamdulil Hakim. You know, praise, praise and gratitude belongs to the, the wise, the knowledgeable, the powerful, the creator. We don't use any of those names. Which one do we use? We use Allah Azza wa in, in, in Fatiha, we use specifically Allah. And there's a profound benefit in that. And the benefit is, you know, if we thanked Allah for being, and thanked and praised Allah for be, being the Khaliq, then the only thing you're appreciating about Him is that He created. If we say, Hamd belongs to the wise, the only thing you thanked Him for is what? His wisdom. That's it. If you say praise belongs to the merciful, the only thing you praise and appreciate is His mercy. But if you want to praise everything about Allah, everything about Allah in one, the only thing you're left to say is what? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah covers all the praise. 
The other thing that's really interesting and unique about the way the language of the ayah, of just that phrase is structured. Praise belongs to Allah. As opposed to saying, I praise Allah or we praise Allah. You know, halfway down the Fatiha we say, Na'budu, Iyaka. Na'budu, we enslave ourselves, we worship. But we don't say, Na'hmadullah, we, we praise Allah. Even though the Khatib says that, Alhamdulillah, Alladhi Na'hmaduhu wa Nasta'inuhu, we say, we praise. So what's the difference between saying, praise belongs to Allah, praise and gratitude belong to Allah, and saying, we praise, and we are grateful to Allah. The difference between these is very profound. When we say, we praise Allah, we have not always been around. And we will not always be around. But the praise of Allah has always been around, and it will always be around. And when I say we praise Allah or I praise Allah, I didn't say anything about the rock and the tree and the sky and the earth and everything else that praises Allah, right? I only talked about who? Myself. But when we say Alhamdulillah, praise and gratitude belong to Allah. It means for all time, all places and all instances of that praise belong to Allah, whether we counted it or not. Whether we do hamd or not, praise still belongs to Allah. It's independent of us. SubhanAllah. This is Allah's introduction to Himself in the Fatiha. And the very next term, the first description of Allah, the, the, you could say the ism that's used for Allah Azza wa Jal is Rabb. Alhamdulillahi Rabb. And this is a very profound thing in our deen. You, want, you have to understand this. This is the heart of the matter. Ya ayyuhal nas u'budu rabbakum. This is the, the heart of the matter. You know, Rabb in English translation is commonly translated as Lord. That's how it's commonly translated nowadays. The classical, English, the classical Arabic meaning includes a few things. As-Sayyid, Wal-Murabbi, Wal-Mun'im, Wal-Qayyim. Right? There, there are a few things in it. The one who, who's in charge, Malik also. The one who owns, the one who has complete control and authority over something. The one who ensures the, and takes care of something completely. They're in charge of the complete taking care of something. And then on top of that, the one who gives them gifts. And most importantly, the master. Now when we translate that as Lord, when we translate Alhamdulillah as or Rabbil Alameen as Lord of the Worlds. Tell me, where do you use the word Lord nowadays? In common language, we don't really use the word Lord much anymore. Except maybe of the rings or something, right? <laughs> so otherwise you don't really use the word Lord. But you know the classical meaning of the word Rabb, it's closer to the English term master. Because Rabb was used for the owner of a slave. And what do we use that in English for that? When somebody owns a slave, what do we call them? A master. And so the, the slave is called Abd, Abd, that slave, and the master is called Rabb. Allah tells us, Alhamdulillah, and then the first thing He tells us about him is what? That he is the master. And he's Rabb. If He's telling us that he is Rabb, what does that make us immediately? Yeah. It makes us slaves. So first Allah introduces us to how praiseworthy and how we should be grateful to Him. But now you should know that there's a relationship between you and Him. And the relationship is established with the word Rabb. He takes the role of master, we take the role of slave. We take the role of slave. Now here, another, a couple of very important pointers that no Muslim should ever forget. There's a difference between someone who worships and someone who's a slave. Difference between a worshipper and a slave. There's a difference between them. We were just making taraweeh prayer. That's an act of worship. That's worship. Christians do worship on Sunday. Jews do worship on Saturdays. Hindus do worship at their temple. Right? Different religions have different forms of worship. But what's the difference between someone who's worshipping and someone who's a slave? You see, worship happens at a certain time. Doesn't it? The adhan is called and then the iqama is given and then we worship. The month of fasting, the act of fasting is an act of worship. These are specific acts. Hajj is an act of what? Of worship. 
But slavery is not specified by a time and is not limited to an act. Worship is limited to an act. But slavery, a slave is a slave when? All the time. He's not a slave from 9 to 5. He's not a slave from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. or between the prayers or right at the time of the prayer. A slave is a slave all the time. So by Allah calling Aswab, He is not only demanding that we worship Him, but what? That we become His slaves. And a slave is, when he's sleeping, he's a slave. When he wakes up, he's a slave. When he's in the masjid, he or she is a slave. When they leave the masjid, he or she is a slave. When it's Ramadan, they are a slave. And when it's Eid, they're also a slave. I mentioned that particularly because we don't act a lot like slaves when it's Eid time. Right? We act a lot like slaves when it's Ramadan time. Then we become free. <laughs> Literally. But we're slaves still. We're not free. <laughs> right? So anyway, this is the, 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 the first thing. And slavery is also different from service. That's another thing. We don't really translate ourselves as servants. Some people translate servant of Allah. Right? There's a difference between a servant and a slave. Abd is really literally slave. What's the difference between a servant and a slave? A ser- the word servant in English comes from service, doesn't it? Right? Now you provide service at your company. You're an accountant, you're a programmer, right? you're an engineer, you provide a service. And you, when you provide a service, what do you expect in return? A salary, a pay, it's a paycheck. Right? A service is an agreement in which both parties owe something. You owe the work, they owe the money. That's what service is. Right? And service is also limited. And once you serve your company as an accountant, they cannot tell you to wash the windows. Unless the economy is really bad. But you know, <laughs> normally they can't tell you to wash the window. Why? What, what are you going to say? This is not part of my service contract. This is beyond my job description. A slave doesn't have a job description. You know what the slave's job description is? Whatever the master says. That's a slave's job description. As opposed to that, a servant, there's certain things he does, everything else he's basically what? He's free. He's got his own room, right? Well, so we declare ourselves, you know, Allah declares himself Rabb. And then Rabbil Alameen, master of the nations and the peoples and generations of all of the worlds. That's a long discussion that I won't go into right now, just the introduction, the understanding of the word Al-Alameen. But a few other things right now. You know, I already already said Rabb will be translated as master and Abd will be translated as what? Slave. Now, both of these words are very ugly in English. Master and slave are ugly words in English, especially in, in all human history, but also particularly in American history. These don't bring back fun memories. These are ugly things to remember, right? And whenever you think of a master, do you think a slave loves their master or hates their master? In human history, a slave hates their master. Also, a slave, if you give them the choice, would they rather be free or remain slaves? They'd rather be free. Here's another thing. A slave usually doesn't praise his master and usually doesn't thank his master. Exact opposite, actually. They're ungrateful because they'd rather not be slaves. They're forced into it. And second of all, they, they complain about their master instead of praising their master. Before Allah told us he's, their, he's our master, what did he tell us first? Before he even got to Rabb. Alhamdulillah. Not huwa Rabbul Alameen walhamdulahu. He is the master of all of you and of all the nations of the world. By the way, you should praise him. No, praise came even first. In other words, what we're learning here is, it is because you are so grateful to Allah, and you realize that you have to praise Allah so much, that naturally you want to become his slave. You want to become his slave. This is a different kind of slavery. Something that begins with hamd. No other slavery begins with hamd. This is the only one. No other slavery is voluntary. By the way, halfway down the aisle, we volunteer ourselves as slaves. Iyaka. Allah doesn't say become slaves. We say we worship. We we enslave ourselves. 
we give ourselves in. So it's a different kind of slavery. Notice, nobody ever applies for a job to become a slave. Nobody ever says, oh, I make a really good slave, I'm really good at taking beatings, I love living in a shack in the backyard, etc., etc. Nobody does that. Nobody wants to be a slave. But when it comes to Allah, we declare in the Fatiha that we actually want to be His slaves. We want to be His slaves, right? So, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Now, the other thing that you never associate with a master is mercy. A master is usually associated with oppression, forcing things on you, punishing you if you disobey him. But Allah describes him as, himself as soon as he tells us he's Rabbil Alameen, what's the next description? You all know this by heart. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Two words for mercy. Now, I know English translations commonly say the beneficent, the merciful. But I'm going to give you a, 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 you know, a down-to-earth translation because you don't use the word beneficent in everyday English. So you don't really probably connect with that word very easily. Ar-Rahman basically means someone who is being extremely merciful right now. That's basically the, the, the connotation of the word. Someone who is being merciful right now and they are being extremely merciful right now. Unimaginably merciful. Now when you say about somebody, that person is very merciful then they may not, be, they may not be, be engaged in mercy right now. They may be merciful, but not necessarily right now. When you say this is a nice guy, that doesn't necessarily mean he's being nice when? Right now. But when you say Ar-Rahman, what does that mean? That not only Allah is extremely merciful, that His mercy is being executed immediately, right now. And Ar-Rahim means someone who has always been and always will always be merciful. So Ar-Rahman takes care of our immediate need for mercy And Ar-Rahim takes care of our future need for mercy Both of them are covered in these two words And these two words are incredibly powerful in depicting Allah's mercy Between these two words lies this understanding that we will never understand how merciful Allah is We won't understand Now let me tell you something about a master, ourselves as masters You own your car, you are the master of your car A thousand years ago somebody was a master of their goat or their cow or whatever the cow stops giving milk what does the master have a right to do? he could slaughter the cow, he could beat it, he could do whatever he wants with it the neighbor is going to say animal rights, he'll say no not for another thousand years I could do, I am the master, I could do whatever I want you're the master of your laptop, it freezes up on you, it gives you the blue screen of death what do you have the right to do? you could slam it on the floor, kick it, punch it, whatever you want, it's yours you have full rights, by the way when you own something and it has a job to do when it doesn't do its job what does the owner have a right to do? anything you want they could discard it they could, they could let go of it they could you know, break it, punish it whatever it may be now we acknowledge that we are property belonging to Allah He is Rabb, we are Abd we are property and we also have a task, a job because if you're the slave then your job is to do whatever the master says what if you and I were people who never figured out what the master says or never cared and we live life thinking that we are what? free thinking that we're free does the master have the right to do away with us? does he have that right? absolutely, he does and you know if you, if you disobey the master disappoint the master once he has that right now imagine how many times you and I disappoint Allah and imagine how many times humanity disappoints Allah does he let it slide? Does he keep letting it go? Unimaginable how merciful he's being to us. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, even though he's the master. You see the placement of those words? We are, it's, it's put us in an incredibly grateful position. When you get to Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, you want to go back and say Alhamdulillah again. 
Because we're now we're grateful to Allah for what? For, for now, especially His exceeding mercy that He doesn't take a, punish us. And by the way, even though you learn His commandments, for example, don't lie. Simple commandment. Whenever you do lie, does lightning strike from the sky and cut your tongue off? You get to talk again, don't you? Whenever you're, you steal, there's no axe flying from the clouds that chops your hand off. Nope. You could steal again. You could cheat again. You could oppress again. And you think, and the more people do that, and they, nothing happens, you know what they do? They get more brave. Right? If somebody cuts a stop sign, first time they do it, they're looking around all over. Second time they're looking around. Third time, what happens? They get a little brave. <laughs> right? They think, ah, it's okay, this is an okay neighborhood. Right? And if they get caught at that time, they're in shock. How could this ever have happened? Right? This is exactly the attitude of the human being with Allah. The, the, the human being disobeys Allah once, twice. Out of mercy, Allah lets him go. Allah lets him go because of mercy. He thinks Allah lets him go because he didn't see. Or nobody's watching. We're not on camera. <laughs> There's no surveillance. There's no record. But when Allah does catch, he's in shock. How could this have happened? How did I become such a criminal? How did I let it go this far? Right? So, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. And then, this is the, this is the, the part that I really want to emphasize, inshallah, and the rest will be brief. Maliki Yawmiddin. On the one extreme is mercy. What's the other extreme of mercy? What's the polar opposite of mercy, you think? What's the polar opposite? Justice is not the opposite of mercy. Punishment. The opposite of mercy is punishment. Either you're mer- merciful or you're oppressive. These are two extremes. You know what's in them? If you could say mercy is on the positive end, and punishment is where? On the negative end? What's at zero? What's right in the middle? Justice. Justice. On the one hand, mercy. On the other hand, oppression. And in the middle, at point zero, justice. You would think Allah told us about His mercy. What else is He going to tell us about? His punishment. But in Fatiha, instead of telling us about the negative, the punishment, what did He tell us about? His justice. Maliki yawm ad-deen. Maliki yawm ad-deen. The master of the day of judgment, justice. When everybody gets exactly what they deserve. From this we learn a profound lesson. You don't have to fear the punishment of Allah. You have to fear the justice of Allah. You and I, we're not afraid of Allah's punishment as much as we are of Allah's justice. You know why? Because if Allah's justice begins, that's, there's no difference between that and punishment. Allah, of course, Allah does not punish unless there is a right to do so. So if justice begins, it means mercy has ended. Mercy is Allah doesn't do justice to you. He lets it slide. Right? But justice is everything you did gets counted and audited. Right? And you know, this is explained in the Quran elsewhere. I'll give you a brief reference to it. You know, people are given the book in their right hand on the day of judgment. Right? Right? The guy who's given the book in his right hand. Now, just because the book is in your right hand doesn't mean you're done with the testing. Now you have to present your book. You have to present your book. So now, you think you're going to be nervous when you're about to present your book? You know, when you're taking a test in class, some teachers, they like to grade the test in the classroom, in front of you. You ever see that? The student takes the test at the desk, and the teacher starts grading right there in front of them. What happens to the student at that time? They're like, uh, you know, nervous. As soon as the red pen gets close to the paper, they look over like, oh my goodness. Right, and there's a check mark, and oh, alhamdulillah. <laughs> right? So now, that idea, the book has been presented in your right hand, now you have to present it before your master, before the angels. They have to open it up. So you're nervous. You don't know what's going to... You feel good because it's in your right hand. You're definitely failed if it's where? If you're in your left hand. So at least it's in your right hand, it looks good, but there's no guarantees yet. 
Now you presented, and Allah Azza wa Jal, out of mercy, He says, فَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ فَسَوْفَ يُحَاسَبُ حِسَابًا يَسِيرًا He will be given an easy audit. In other words, not everything will be checked. Easy. The, the angel will go easy on this guy. Just go, just go. It's okay. We understand. He's about to present page 25. No, no, no. We had enough. Thanks. You can go. You can go. And he passes through. And when he gets to the other side, he's incredibly happy. Because he passed. He graduated. So he starts reciting. He starts screaming. And this occurs in another place in the Quran. فَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ فَيَقُولُ when he gets to the other side and he's given the book in the right hand, what does he say? Oh, read my book. Look, I graduated. What'd you get? <laughs> right? Iqra'u kitabiyah. But the point I'm trying to make is we fear Allah's justice. The Messenger told us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِنَّهُ مَنْ سُئِلَ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ فَقَدْ هَلَكَ The one who is asked even once on the Day of Judgment, it's like they've been destroyed already. The angel so much as comes to you and says, what were you doing on November 30th, you know, November 30th outside the AMC theater at 3 p.m.? What was that? What was that over there? One question, one little question. That's enough. If the questioning begins, you're done for. We beg Allah Azza wa Jal for that. This is the hadith of the Prophet. Allahumma hasibna hisaban yasira. Oh Allah, give us an easy accounting, an easy reckoning in which we be benefit from Allah's mercy and we stay away from Allah's justice. Allah's justice is for the wrongdoers. Allah's mercy is for the believers. May Allah be included, may we be included from them. Inshallah ta'ala. Okay. So now, now I want to get to just a couple more quick pointers and we're done. Inshallah ta'ala. Maliki yawmiddin. Then after you understand these few things about Allah, you understand one more thing there. That's very, very important for theological purposes and for students of philosophy. Nowadays when our kids go to college, it's mandatory for them to take at least one philosophy course. And guess where their iman gets messed up? That one philosophy course. Okay? You know, the, you know the, these professors, they're, they're, the whole idea of being intellectual nowadays is to be agnostic. In other words, I don't believe there's a God, I don't believe there is no God, I'm just not sure. That's what makes me really smart. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but that's, the, that's academic culture today. Agnosticism is considered a high intellectual place. And professors and, and intellectuals that have faith, they consider them biased because they, they call it a faith bias. I call it a truth bias, but they call it a faith bias. Right? But anyway, here's what I want to share with you that's really important for you to understand when you talk to other Muslims or even non-Muslims about the deen and about Allah Azza wa Jal. It is impossible to believe in God without believing in an afterlife. If somebody says they believe in God but they don't believe in an afterlife, that's impossible. Then what they're basically saying is they don't believe in God at all. These two things are in integrally connected. You can't separate them. So I want to show you what the connection between these two things is. Why are they inseparable from each other? The belief in God and the belief in an afterlife. Right? How are these two things connected? If anybody believes in a God, we believe in Allah Azza wa Jal, the proper name for, for God, right? Then they have to believe that He's perfect in every way. He's, he's, he's got the best names, the best attributes, the best descriptions, and He's flawless. If you give any flaw to God, He's not God anymore. If you say anything imperfect about God, then you believe in less than God. Then your belief is gone. And among his most perfect names is he's just, isn't he? Justice is one of the attributes of perfection. Injustice is imperfect. So God, if we believe in a God, he has to be what? He has to be just. He has to be just. That's a necessary condition of believing in perfection of Allah Azza wa Now, when you look, we believe Allah created this world. 
And in this world, is there justice or injustice? There's injustice. There are criminals who get away with it. There are innocent who get punished. People get it, and people live their whole lives like that. There are people who do so much good, and the only thing they get in return is the death penalty. And there are people who do so much bad, and they live the life of kings. They kill and get away with it. And let me add to you this problem about the problem of justice in this world. If one person kills another person, what's the most you can do to them? Kill them. If one person kills a hundred people, one person kills a hundred people, what's justice? What should you do to this one person? What's the most you could do to them? How many times are you going to kill them? Once. Is that justice? He paid for one life. He didn't pay for a hundred lives. Is that justice? No. And is one life the cost of, you know, this guy had no brother, no sister, no father, no mother. He was a loner. And he was the killer. And the one he killed was supporting an entire family. Even if you kill him, is that still justice? Did, was more damage caused by that loss of life than this loss of life? Right? So even if it's one for one, it may not be what? Just. It may not be just. Justice is a very tricky thing. Right? So the question that comes in the mind of the atheist is, if God is perfect, how come there is what? Injustice. Because he created it, right? So everything should be just. Now the answer to that is very simple. I started by saying how many kinds of realities are there? How many worlds are there? Alimul ghaybi wa shahadi. The world of the unseen and the world of the seen. This is the seen world. Those of you that are in accounting, you understand debit and credit? This is the world of debit. This is the world of debit. Some debit, some credit. You know when the books are going to be balanced? Day of judgment. Day when justice is absolutely served. When one guy killed a hundred, he pays for how many? He pays for a hundred. There he can pay for a Here he can't pay for a hundred. But there, he can pay for a hundred. In other words, believing in a perfect God, as we do, necessitates that Allah execute justice. And that justice comes not in this life, but in the next life. Believing in a God demands we believe He's perfect. Believing He's perfect demands that we believe in justice. Believing in justice demands that we believe in an afterlife. All these things are connected. They're all connected. Now the last thing about this, some basic lessons of Al-Fatiha. Justice is to, you know, for crimes to be punished and good deeds to be rewarded. Isn't that justice? Good things should be rewarded and bad things should be punished. Who decides what's good and who decides what's bad? Before we get to that answer from the Fatiha, I want you to think about this. Human society from its very inception, I'm not even talking in religious terms, just think of it in out-of-the-box out terms. Human society since its beginning has been in conflict. There's been a fight between men and women for thousands of years. There's a fight, and let's talk about this fight between men and women. I'll give you the simplest version of it. I used to teach at an Islamic school, right? Boys and girls in sixth grade, half the class is boys, the other half is girls. And we can't give them recess together. You know, we must keep them separated. So some days boys have recess, other days girls have recess. So I said in the class, I said, look, we only have five weekdays. How about we give three days to one group and two days to the other group? And I'll let the girls decide. I'll let the girls decide who gets three days and who gets two days. Guess what they decided? Girls. Then I said, okay, okay, let's let the boys decide. Who gets three days, who gets two days? What did the boys decide? Boys. I'm putting the problem very simply to you. When there's a conflict between man and woman, what is man capable of siding with only? Himself. What is woman capable of siding with? 
First off, let's put it in contemporary terms. You go to divorce court. Right? You go to divorce court. The husband and the wife are there. The judge is a woman. Who does she feel bad for more? The woman starts sympathizing with the woman. If the judge is a man who recently got divorced, <laughs> right? And he's a judge. And he's in court. Who's he going to side with? He's going to side with the man. You understand? You have, the human beings have bias. In the end, the judge is going to be man or the judge is going to be what? Woman. You want, you know, you want to decide what are the rights of men? What are the rights of women? What are the obligations of men? What are the obligations of women? How do you create justice between men and women? In marriage, in, in business, in social life, every aspect of life, how do you create justice? Okay, let's let men decide. They'll favor men. Let's let women decide. They'll favor who? Women. How can we get a judge, a judge who's neutral? A neutral judge. Doesn't side with men, doesn't side with women, actually loves and sides and understands both of them perfectly. Who can, who's the only one who can be that? That can only be Allah. The one who created both of them and knows them better than they know themselves. He can only be the fair judge. That's the only one who can be the right judge. Here's another problem. This was the first problem was man versus woman. I'm going to show you four problems, okay? And then we'll conclude. The first problem was man versus woman. Here's the second problem. The boss versus the employee. In sophisticated terms, we call this the problem of capital versus labor. The boss versus the employee. The boss has an employee, he pays him, let's say, $200 a week. And he gives him three days off in a month. He gives him three days off. Okay? Now, the employee wants to get paid more, and he also wants more vacation. What does the boss want? He wants to pay him more or less. He wants to pay him less and wants to give him less vacation. <laughs> the employee wants to work less and get paid more. The employer wants to pay less and get work out of him more, right? So you have to have a balance between them. Who should be right? Now, you, in, that problem is an ancient problem. Back in the day, the landowner and the farmer, the feudal lord and the farmer, today you have GM and the union. It's the same problem, the boss and the worker. It's the same exact problem. But the problem, the, the real question is, how do you find justice between these two sides? If you let the management decide, who will they favor? Management. If you let the workers decide, who will they favor? Workers. And this is always going to remain a struggle. You have to have a balance between capital and labor. And by the way, our deen has that. Our deen has that balance between these two conflicts. So the first problem was man and woman. We call that the social conflict. The second is the economic conflict, capital and labor. Here's a third conflict. There's the government and there's the people. The government says there should be more taxes, more control, right? And the people say what? Less taxes. The government says there should be less services provided. The people say what? There should be more services provided. They're both at a conflict against each other. So what's the balance between the government and the people? And in the end, if you have a judge, either that judge sides with the government or that judge sides with the people. You can't have both. You can't have some... In, your, in our head, we're partitioned, right? We have to be this way or that way. So there's man versus woman. There's capital versus labor. There's people versus what? There's government. So there's social problem, economic problem, political problem. These are the three kinds. Of, and there's a fourth, so there's the last problem. The last problem is Allah created us with this clay, but He put inside it something else. The ruh. The ruh, right? And this clay, it feels hunger, it feels thirst, 
It has desires. It wants to beautify itself. It wants to earn. It has greed. It has all these things. But the ruh wants to worship Allah, wants to remember Allah, wants to stand in qiyam. The, the, the soul says, keep standing, finish it, finish it. We can hold on. The body says, go take a break. Go drink some water. Go eat something. Go get some extra sleep. The soul says, wake up and come to fajr. Right? The body says, stay sleeping. There's, a, there's another war going on, not between outside ent- entities. Where's this war going on? Inside every person. There's a battle between the soul and the body. There are some people who only take care of the needs of their body. There are other extremists who only take care of the need of their soul. Like some monasteries among the Christians, look, we're not going to get married, we're not going to eat good tasting food, we're going to wear uncomfortable clothes. Like some brands of ancient Sufis in Islamic tradition, you know the word Suf comes from Sauf, which is a wool. They used to wear really uncomfortable wool because they did not want to enjoy the pleasures of this life. They only want to keep concerned with their soul, so they keep denying their body. Now, is there a balance that can be reached between these two things? There is, but it's very difficult. You know, the Buddhist has his own balance, and the Hindu guy has his own balance, and the Christians try to figure out their own balance, and they end up all in imbalance. Who's the only one who can provide the perfect balance between the body and the soul? The one who created the body and also created the the soul, who engineered this whole thing. In other words, true balance can only come from Allah Azza wa in this in this world. These are all the problems of humanity. These four are basically all, all, the entire problem of humanity. When we get to the ayah, al-mustaqim, guide us to and along the straight path. Where is the straight path? It's neither to the left nor to the right. And the nation that goes on this path is called the middle nation, Ummatan Wasata. Why? Because this path is right down the middle. It doesn't favor men, it doesn't favor women. It doesn't favor government, it doesn't favor people. It doesn't favor the body, it doesn't favor the soul. It is a balance between all of these things. It's right down the middle. It's right down the middle. And so we have to ask Allah for that. We make Allah the judge. It's an incredible declaration in the Fatiha. Of a recognition that true justice only comes from Allah Azza wa Jal. This is the quest for Hidayah. A lot of times we think of guidance as something about just, you know, uh, staying away from certain haram things and that's it. That's what guidance is. Guidance is something so much more. It's something so powerful. The stuff we've been reciting tonight and just, you know, we finished Baqarah tonight, alhamdulillah, and we started Al-Imran. The things we've been reciting thus far, if the Muslims just understood a speck of what has been recited thus far, we would be a different ummah. We would be an entirely different ummah. May Allah Azza wa Jal make us of those who beg Allah for His guidance and are able to live by that guidance. May Allah Azza wa Jal make us of those who follow the path who Allah already favored in the past and not make us of those who either they earned rage or they went astray. They went the wrong way. And this is the last five minutes and I'm going to be done inshallah ta'ala I promise. Here's my last five minutes. You know the Fatiha begins Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin Those are all ideas Those are lessons You could call them knowledge All of those are knowledge The knowledge that praise belongs to Allah Gratitude belongs to Allah The knowledge that He is the master of the nations and peoples of the world The knowledge that He is exceedingly merciful The knowledge that He is the master of the day of judgment All of that is what? Knowledge When we say we worship We enslave ourselves We seek help these are not, this is not knowledge, this is action. Right? This is action. The surah began with what? Knowledge. And immediately, what did we start talking about? Action. Right? Knowledge, action. All of Islam is like that. You have to have knowledge, and that knowledge better lead you to action. That's all of Islam in Fatiha. Knowledge, then action. 
But here are two extremes. You know we said it's the middle path, right? So there's a balance between two things, two ingredients, knowledge and what? Action. That's also part of guidance. But what are two extremes? Sometimes people have knowledge, but they don't have what? Action. They don't have action. And sometimes people have action, but it's not based on any knowledge. knowledge. And this used to be, you know, for if you want to look at the nations of the past, Jews, for example, Bani Israel, they had knowledge, but no action. The Nasara, they had a lot of action. They worship a lot, you know, the, the Rohban and all of this stuff. But what's not, what, what is it not based on? No, what's missing is knowledge. You've got two extremes. Each one missing one ingredient, right? Now, in the Fatiha, the balance is the middle path. Ihdina Sirat al-Mustaqeem. But what are the two imbalanced paths? غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ Two extremes, right? Two imbalanced paths. The path of those who earned rage. You know who these people are? They have knowledge, but they don't have action. This is al-maghdubi alayhi. And who are the people that are lost? Abdalin. I don't say gone astray, because you don't use that nowadays anymore when you speak to each other. When somebody invites you to dinner and you get lost on the way, you don't call them and say, hey, I've gone astray. Could you tell me what exit to take? You don't do that. You say, I'm lost, right? Abdalin are the lost. They're the lost. So you have al-maghdubi alayhim, the people who have knowledge but don't have action, consistent with that knowledge. On the other hand, you have people that have action, but it's not based on any knowledge. When you act without knowledge, what are you called? Lost. Abdalin. Subhanallah, the surah has that balance and then warns us against these two elements of imbalance. This is, and these are some of the more basic lessons and profound wisdom, the, the gems, the treasures that are embedded inside Surah Al-Fatiha that we recite every single day. Every single day. You know, we ask Allah for, this is the center of the surah, Ihdina, I have one minute left, Ihdina, guide us. If I ask you for water, I'm not that thirsty right now, but if I ask you for water and you don't give it to me, I'll survive, right? Not the end of the world. What if I was dying of thirst? The way I would ask you for water, would it be the same? There's a difference, right? There's a difference in attitude and the difference in the way I act, the difference in the way I beg. We ask Allah for guidance every time we stand in salah. Every time. How do we ask Allah for guidance? What words do we recite? Are we really dying of the thirst for guidance? Or is this a casual, ah, if I get it, good. If I don't get it, it's okay. There's always the next rakah. I could ask for it again. What attitude is it with which we are asking Allah? Allah doesn't just know the words we're saying. He also knows the attitude of our heart. We have to ask Allah for guidance sincerely, desperately. We have to feel the need for it. You don't ask for something you don't need. So until you feel the need for guidance, you won't really learn how to ask for it. You and I both. We have to feel that desperate need for Allah's guidance. Then we ask for it. Then Allah opens our heart to receive the message and the, w- the wisdom of this Qur'an, which is the guidance that we're reciting throughout this month. May Allah Azza wa Jal accept our standing in Salah. May Allah Azza wa Jal open our hearts to receive His guidance and change our behavior and our lives and the lives of our family on account of it. May Allah enlighten our hearts with the light of the Qur'an. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I wasn't really asking. <laughs> <laughs>